Welcome to the John Gets Games podcast. In this episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a recent impressions vlog where I discussed my initial plays of the Inseln im Nebel, Nidavellir, and Pandoria Merchants. Now, I played all three of these online with friends using Tabletop Simulator, and interestingly enough, I actually built the mod for all three of these games. Uh, for two of them, I purchased a copy and scanned the contents in, and for Pandora Merchants, well, there is a print and play that I just uploaded into Tabletop Simulator. Uh, now, currently, these are not publicly available, I just made them to play with friends, but I did want to mention how I was able to play them. Next up, I do want to point out that there are timestamps in the description of this podcast for each of these sections, so if you want to listen to just part of this podcast, you can go there and jump to the spot that you want to listen to. The next thing I'd like to say is that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support coming in through the John Gets Games Patreon campaign. Now, if you'd like to directly support the channel and the creation of these podcasts, then you can go to patreon.com slash Games to learn how. The last thing I'd like to ask before we start talking about games is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say here today, that you please leave those as comments on the YouTube page for the Impressions Vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. Alright, let's now jump into the games, and the first one I'll be talking about today is Die Inseln im Nebel. Uh, now, I believe the translation of that in from German means The Islands in the Fog, and this is a game that I learned about about three or so months ago. Um, it had not crossed my radar at all, but then uh, somebody I follow on Twitter um, posted some images of it, and I thought it looked really compelling. Um, in this game, each player has a board in front of them covered in hex spots, and most of that board has fog on it, which makes sense. These are islands in the fog. And then there is a, a hot air balloon token that starts in the middle of that area. Now, the way you play this game is on every turn, there will be a couple dice rolled, and one of them dictates the direction of the wind. Uh, now, that is going to be the direction for all players, so we all have our own island. And then you are going to move your hot air balloon in the direction of the wind, and you will go a distance equal to the value of the spot where you stopped with your hot air balloon. Um, after you move, you will then gather tiles from the center of the table. There are a variety of little clouds that can accumulate tiles, so you take all of the tiles from one cloud. And then finally, you can drop any tiles that you have um, in your area around that uh, hot air balloon wherever it decided to stop. So there's no cost to drop these tiles. In fact, um, depending on the position you're in, you could drop, you know, three, four, uh, or even, I guess, five of these tiles down in one shot if that makes sense. Now, that's essentially what you do on your turn, and then the next person goes, and every single person within the round is going to be uh, going off of that same wind direction. So that means you can <laughs> really find yourself all over this island as the wind just changes. Now, that seems super random, I imagine, and there's a big way that you can mitigate that randomness because you have energy. I guess you have a big propeller on your hot air balloon or something like that. Now, energy is something you can accumulate, and you can get a lot of it, um, relatively easily. And when you are moving your hot air balloon, you can spend an extra energy to go one space farther or one space um, nearer to where you started. So if you started on a three spot, you should go three spaces. You could spend an energy to go two or four. Now you can keep spending energy. So that means if you did not want to move at all, you could spend three energy to go from three down to zero and then just stay put. Um, now, if you don't like that direction at all, you can still fly to other parts of your island. It just costs more energy. You have to go down to zero space 
speed to stop the wind. And then you can spend two energy for each uh, space that you go in the different direction from the wind. So um, even though the die might not be anything that you want, um, hopefully you have enough energy to spend it to go to the spots that you actually do want to go to. Um, now you can gain energy every time you take a tile by discarding that tile and gaining energy equal to the number on it. And that number is uh, from one to six. So you can get quite a bit of energy that way. Uh, so what this means is as you're playing the game, you obviously want to make the best of the wind situation as you're being pushed around this island in a hot air balloon, which thematically makes a lot of sense. Um, but again, you can spend this easily acquirable resource to actually go where you need to go. Now, the goal of this game is uh, once it is over, you are trying to score points for the tiles that you've dropped down onto your island. And um, there's a lot of ways to score, but the main way that you're going to be getting points is you want these island, uh, these hex tiles to be adjacent or connected to via like uh, tiles to the matching coast. Um, this island has six coasts and there are six different types. So that means if you drop a forest tile next to the forest coast, that tile is worth two points. And if you drop another forest tile next to the first one, then you can connect forest tiles all the way back to that coast and get two points per tile. And there are wild tiles that makes this a little bit easier, but only give you one point each. Um, I'm trying not to go into all the specifics. And in fact, at this point, I now want to start talking about how the play went. So um, I was able to play a three-player game of this just last night, and we played with module one, which is effectively the base way to play the game. Uh, in the box, there are three modules effectively that increase the complexity of the game. And I figured for this first play, I would just play with the first module. In fact, I haven't even imported the uh, stuff that I need to play with the other modules into this mod and tabletop simulator that I made. Uh, so I played this with uh, two of my friends, and overall, I really enjoyed the experience. Uh, I liked the idea of trying to make the best of where I sailed on the island. I uh, used energy a decent bit to actually force the hot air balloon into the spots that I wanted to go. And I was able to gather a bunch of tiles and place them down. And I did very well. I won by a pretty large margin, which um, could be part of the reason why I enjoyed it. Also, I bought the game and also I put, you know, four to five hours into creating this mod. So there's a lot of reasons why I was predisposed to enjoy the game. Now, the flip side is one of my friends who played this really disliked the experience. And the main reason for that, I believe, uh, according to him, has to do with the uh, turn order mechanic. Now, I didn't mention this before, but at the end of each round, the player whose hot air balloon is on the uh, speediest location, the, play, the location with the highest number, is going to be the starting player for the next round. And then play always goes clockwise from that person. Now, what ended up happening is the person to my right ended up taking a lot of very fast tiles, and they intentionally kept landing on those fast tiles because they wanted to go early. Um, now, the first and second player in a three-player game uh, oftentimes have access to getting two tiles from the clouds instead of one. So what ended up happening is I kept going on very slow clouds, but I kept going second because I was clockwise away from the person who was going fastest. So I kept getting two tiles, and then the person who did not enjoy it was to my left, so they kept going third, and they kept getting one tile instead. I actually ended the game with, I think, around 20 to 25% more tiles on my island than they did, so it's not super surprising that I won by a decent margin because those tiles can be worth a lot of points. Now, I still beat the player who went first by a large margin as well, and, you know, they obviously got had about the same amount of tiles as I did, but this is a factor. Now, the game does come with a mitigation effect where the player who goes last is the one who rolls the dice, and they can actually re-roll the dice, so they have control over, uh, well, a little bit of control over what is going to be happening 
nothing in that round, but it did not seem like it was enough to mitigate the issues of essentially going second. Now, before I harp on this too much, I want to circle back to the fact that we were playing the basic version of this game. Now, I uh, subsequently went back and read the rules to Module 2 and Module 3, which add in a lot more mechanics, and each of these modules give you new ways to uh, take tiles on your turn instead of taking tiles from the clouds in the middle of the table. Now, as I briefly mentioned before, you have these tiles in the middle and you add one tile to each uh, at the start of each round, and then you take all of the tiles from the clouds when you grab from them. So that means in a three-player game, there are five uh, of these clouds. So three of them are taken each round. And when you add these out, like I said before, the first and second place players usually got two tiles and the third place player got one. Now, if you play with the other modules, there are other ways to uh, take tiles where you don't even touch the clouds. Now, each cloud can take up to three hexes and they never, I think, got to three hexes, maybe once in the whole game. So I think when you play with these modules, those clouds are going to accumulate a lot more because there are other good options to take hexes instead of going to the clouds. So I have a strong suspicion that um, the main criticism that made this game very unfun for that player um, is going to be uh, really minimized if we play with the other modules. In fact, it would not surprise me at all if this game was designed with all three of the modules in mind and then they broke it out into these three separate modules to make the game more family friendly and uh, you know uh, simpler for players. So I think we ended up playing a game that was kind of intentionally not as balanced as it could have been if we were playing with all of the modules based off of the way the design seems to come together. So in the future, I think if I play with module one, I will just institute a house rule of variable turn order where the person who is on the fastest space goes first, the person on the second fastest space goes second, and third fastest goes third. And that means in a three-player game, we might be going counterclockwise, and in a four-player game, we might be zigzagging around the table. But I think the people I play with will have no problem with that kind of concept. And then if I play with the other modules, I'll probably just not do my house rule and just go with it to see how those play. Um, now, it's possible that my friend who disliked it um, also didn't like other aspects of the game. That was the main thing that he mentioned. And um, I do remember him saying, uh, along uh, with what I said, that he um, kind of enjoyed the kind of whimsical hot air balloon thematic thing going on, but just the randomness of the dice uh, not really giving him much as the last player can consistently was just a bit of a bummer for them. Uh, the other player, I think, was in the middle of the road. I think they enjoyed the experience overall. Uh, so we kind of had, didn't like it, thought it was okay, thought it was really fun between the three of us players. And again, I am super biased to enjoy the game because of the time and energy I put into it. Um, but overall, I think for the amount of time that we spent in the game, it was a, a really pleasant experience. I think it's a fun type of game where you can just dump hexes onto the board. Like you, you move your hot air balloon around and you can drop tons of them. You can save some hexes to try and get really good combos going later on. And there are other ways to score besides just matching up the terrain. And um, with the increased modules, there are even more ways to score and more uh, mechanics that I'm trying not to go into here. Um, so there's a lot going on in this game and I'm hopeful that it's even more balanced and solid when I implement the other modules. And um, after reading those rules, I am going to put those into Tabletop Simulator and try to play this one again. I hope that the friend who disliked the experience um, is willing to try it again. Overall, this game took an hour or less, so it was not a huge investment of time um, for somebody to <laughs> unfortunately not enjoy themselves. Uh, and I quite liked the uh, amount of time because it meant we got to play another game that night. And uh, I like playing multiple games in a given game night. So um, that is my current situation with the Incel and Nebel. Um, I am uh, pretty confident that I'm going to enjoy it with the other modules, even though they do bring in more rules. But the base game is so simple. And I don't know, it, uh, once again, it just feels 
like a different game. Like thematically, you're in a hot air balloon, just kind of drifting all over the place, looking down off the side and trying to see what you see, uh, thematically dropping all of these tiles, which kind of reveal the island from the fog. And then you score a bunch of points for it at the end. So um, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. Even if the module one version of the game isn't totally balanced overall, it's probably better for kind of family um, uh, game night type situations versus playing with people who I oftentimes play like two to three hour heavy euros with. But um, that's where I'm currently at with this game. All right, let's now move on to the next game, which is Nidavellir. Uh, much like the Inceln and Nebel, I purchased this game, I imported it, and then it's been sitting on my kitchen table for weeks, if not a month or two, and I really wanted to play it with friends, so I decided to spend the effort to scan all of the components, including the like 130 plus cards, uh, into my computer, and then edit them in Photoshop, and then import them into Tabletop Simulator so that I could play this game that I own. Uh, now, what's going on in this game is you are trying to build out uh, the best band of dwarves that you can in order to, I think, impress the dwarf king and then go slay a dragon thematically. Um, mechanically, you don't do any dragon slaying. This game is all about building up sets of different dwarves. Now, the way you do this is every player has five coins, and these have values on them that range from zero up to five. Now, at the start of each round, you are going to simultaneously decide where all five of these coins are going to go. You have a player board in front of you with three different slots on it for the three different card markets in the middle of the table, and then you have a pouch with two slots. So you place all five of your coins face down, and then once everybody has done this, you flip over the top coin, which is associated with the top market. The player who has put the highest value coin there can then gets to take a card from that market, and each one of the three markets in the middle of the table has cards on it equal to the player count. So that means no matter what, you are going to get a card, but the higher value coin you put down means uh, the more uh, choice you will have with which card you can take. Now, these cards then go in front of you into a growing tableau where you will be making columns and rows, and you will have, I believe it was, five columns total of the five different suits of dwarves that effectively come in the game. Now, every time you complete a full row of one of each of the five types of dwarves, you then can take a hero dwarf from a side table, and all of them are always face up at the start of the game, and they have a pretty wide variety of special effects uh, that can range from set collection between them to lots of special actions. In fact, three of them are so complex that it suggests you don't play with them in the first play, so I didn't. And I haven't actually read the rules to them yet, but there was tons of other heroes to choose from. So what you're trying to do is place these down into your area, obviously, and the heroes can also enable you to complete more rows, which let you get more heroes. Now, as you play through the game, one of your coins is a zero, and that one lets you exchange coins. Remember I said you put three onto the three different markets and then two into your pouch? Well, if you put your uh, zero coin, which is an exchanger, in one of the top three markets, which means you're probably picking last, you then can combine the two coins that are currently in your pouch. So let's say at the start of the game, you put the five and the two in your pouch, and then you put the uh, three, four, and zero in the top markets. Now, when you got to the zero, you would then look to the five and the two, and you sum them together. So five plus two is seven. And then you go to the coin market, and you find the coin of that value, so seven, and you add it into your coin reserve. Then you have to get rid of the highest coin from the two that was summed. So in this case, you essentially turn that five 
into a seven. So now I have a zero, two, three, four, seven instead of zero, two, three, four, five. That means in the next round, I have a seven that I can put down onto the top in order to have um, better uh, access to getting card choice first. Or I could throw that coin down into my uh, purse, uh, purse once again with uh, maybe the four. And then I do seven plus four, which is uh, 11. And then I turn that seven into 11. So you can get more and more coins. And at the end of the game, every coin is worth points equal to the value of it. So by doing that exchange with the seven and the four into an 11 and a four, I just generated four victory points for myself at the end of the game. Now, this is a game where I ended with over 200 points, so four points isn't huge, but you will be adding points up in a wide variety of ways. And obviously this coin thing is a big way to increase your victory points as well as your control over what card you want to take. Now, uh, coming back to the five different types of cards, uh, each of these cards has their own scoring condition. I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty details of all of them, but uh, one set of cards kind of uh, squares on top of themselves or uh, is triangular in nature. Uh, another set just kind of like is additive. I don't know the uh, mathematical terms for these, but um, they, they they scale differently. Another type will, uh, you will add up all of the numbers on those cards and then multiply the number of cards that you have so that can scale. Uh, another one just gives you points for the uh, cards themselves, uh, for the numbers on the cards. And there is one that is a competition with your opponents where the person with the most ranks of that, which is the most cards, uh, will, uh, or I guess little flags on the card if I want to get specific, will get um, to score their best coin again. So there is uh, even a little bit of ways where you want to make sure you have more than your opponents. So for the most part, when you're playing this game, you are obviously doing this blind bid at the start of the round and you're analyzing all of the markets, trying to figure out what cards you want. But in particular, I found myself analyzing the markets to figure out which market I cared about the most. So it was less like, I must have this card, I must have that card, I must have that card. Okay, what do I bid? And it was more like, I could take anything from that market, so I'm going to throw the zero down there. That market seems, you know, half of them are good, half of them aren't, so maybe I'll put my four there or something like that, and I kind of made my decisions that way. Now, as far as my personal taste in board games, I don't generally like blind bidding at all. So I was a little bit worried about that going into this game, but I was intrigued by the idea of it in enough to actually purchase it and, you know, spend the time to make the mod. Fortunately, I was very pleasantly surprised with how breezy the blind bidding was. I think the fact that you are going to be getting something from every single market and every card is good in the game uh, means that it doesn't feel like this crushing anxiety or stress when you're doing the blind bid. Uh, there are many blind bid style games where um, you're just, you know, trying to figure out what you bid and it just, it feels awful. And, and I really dislike that um, when it's a mechanic in games. Fortunately, in this one, you obviously only have the five coins. You will only ever have five coins. So that keeps the decision space small. And it's also simultaneous. So you can be thinking, what are other people going to do? And you can look around and be like, oh, that person over there really wants a blue card. There's only one blue card in this market. Odds are good they're going to go hard on that. Do I really want that blue card? If I don't, well, maybe I just throw a low um, a number into that because I know that they're going to be taking that already and, and I don't really care. So I was very pleasantly surprised at how um, uh, well the blind bidding phase uh, flowed. And I like card drafting in general, and I thought the different ways that the cards scored was fun. Uh, so overall, when the dust settled, I technically won. Um, one other player did get a little bit more points than me, but I got a tiny rule wrong, which I won't go into detail here, but I probably should have won that 
that game. And uh, it seemed like everyone around the table enjoyed it. Um, a couple of us uh, liked it more than the others. One person wasn't sure if their enjoyment of the game was because they liked the game or if it was because of the novelty of the gaming experience. They weren't sure if they would like it anywhere near as much on the second play. Um, they truly weren't sure. So hopefully we can make that happen again because I did enjoy this. Um, as I said, it plays up to five players. And since it's largely simultaneous, I think it would play pretty well at five players. So I would not shy away from trying that in the future. I do want to mention that um, you actually play less rounds in a four and five player game versus the two and three player game. But overall, it's a pretty speedy game. Uh, in the four player game, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe you take six total rounds turns for the entire game. So six blind bids, and then obviously six uh, sets of three of cards that you're taking into your area from the middle of the table. In a two and three player game, I believe it's eight. Um, and there is a mid game scoring halfway through, but I'm trying not to go into all of the details, but it gives you special little powers that are, are certainly nice to have around. Uh, so as I've already spoiled already, I, I quite enjoyed this game. But just like D'Ensel and Neville, I purchased this game and I put a bunch of time into actually importing it into Tabletop Simulator. So I am significantly biased in a couple of different ways. So I was predisposed to enjoy it. But I still did enjoy it. And, you know, I think there is something to be said for that. Uh, it just felt like kind of a fresh, breezy experience. Uh, the rules overhead was relatively low. I think it probably took about 15 minutes to teach. And our four-player game did not take more than an hour, maybe an hour, 15 minutes, but it was right around there. So it did not overstay its welcome. And it felt like it went at a really nice clip. And I enjoyed the kind of combo-y nature of the game where you're trying to make these rows in order to get those heroes, which can give you nice effects and also let you make more rows. But obviously you kind of want to go deep on the columns because that's how you get more points. But getting those heroes is also points. So it has that wonderful push and pull there. Um, in the first play, I decided to go hard on the coins. So I think by the end of the fourth out of six rounds in the game, I had the best coin in the game, which I believe is the 25 coin, because I just spent so much effort getting that. And with that, I was able to um, be pretty dominant with grabbing specific cards that I wanted because it was the best one in the game. And there's only one of that coin. So I knew if I put that down into a market, I would get first dibs, which was um, also a pretty cool thing overall. So I think I'm talking in circles at this point. I can wrap this up by saying uh, it was a great initial impression of Nidavellir at four players. Um, nobody disliked the experience, which is really great to see, considering I asked all of them to uh, spend their time playing it with me. And I am looking forward to playing this one more in the future um, online, as well as potentially someday in person with my copy. Well, we've now reached the third and final game I'll be talking about today, and that is Pandoria Merchants. Now, this is a roll-and-write version of Pandoria, which is a Thailand Euro game that came out a couple of years ago. Now, Pandoria was a strange experience that I enjoyed for its novelty and for its play. It just barely made my top 10 list for the year it came out. And um, in Pandoria Merchants, it is trying to uh, distill all of the ideas realistically from Pandoria into a roll-and-write form. In fact, I believe they designed Pandoria Merchants specifically because of the pandemic and because everybody is uh, playing games online. So they were looking for a way to play Pandoria over video chat. So the way the game works at a very high level is you have a central map that is a sheet of paper normally, but again, I took all of the free print and play assets and pushed them onto Tabletop Simulator to play this. Uh, so there is a map that you are going to be drawing on, and then each player has their own little um, skill sheet area where they're going to be tracking all of their stuff. Now, on a turn, you are going to roll two dice, 
and those dice are going to dictate the types of terrain that you will be drawing out onto the map. When you draw this terrain out, it is uh, hexagonal in, on the grid, and these two that come from the dice have to be adjacent to each other. So effectively, you're putting out adjacent hex, hexes, and that matches the original game. In the original game of Pandoria, every turn, you put out a double hex piece out onto the board. Now, um, in addition to that, in Pandora Merchants, you then have to draw one of your markers onto the board adjacent to the tile that you just played, which is somewhat similar to the original board game. But in the original board game, you had a set number of workers, and there were ways for opponents to kind of uh, bump your workers back off the board. It could be kind of uh, contentious in that way. But since this is a roll and write, you never remove workers from the board. You effectively have infinite workers and you place one down every single turn and it will stay there for the rest of the game. Now, what you are doing, what you're trying to do out here on the map is you are trying to surround areas of different types of resources. And uh, then you also want to have your own workers next to them. What I mean is if there is, let's say the crowns, uh, there are a couple of crowns and then every single spot around those crowns are filled in with either workers, uh, terrain around the edge of the board, or other types of uh, resources, then those crowns are enclosed, and then each player will get one victory point for every crown in that enclosed area times the number of their workers next to those crowns. So you not only want to have a large amount of the icon, you also want to have multiple of your workers next to them, and you want to make sure your opponents don't have those when this gets fully enclosed. So what this means is you can get a lot of stuff <laughs> as uh, players are kind of incentivized to put like uh, resources next to other like resources. Some of these could be really large patches of specific resources. Uh, now, when these score, um, only the crowns give you points. The other ones give you specific resources of that type. Um, when those score, like let's say wood, you then put all the wood that you made onto your board and you track it with a little cube if you're using the uh, print and play roll and write version of the game. Now, you only can store five wood in this game. It's more in the uh, original board game. And every excess wood that you uh, have that you can't store, or I guess every two excess wood, you can turn into a victory point. So again, this game is all about putting your workers out into positions so that they are adjacent to large swaths of the same type of icon when that icon becomes fully enclosed so that you can score just a bunch of stuff. And on top of that, what this game tries to do is it tries to replicate the card play mechanics from the original board game. In the board game, you uh, had ways to purchase cards. You could spend gold to purchase cards, and there's a whole bunch of cards in that game. And every card could be played for its top half, which is a spell for a one-time effect, or you could tuck the top half underneath your board to just show the bottom half, which was a building which gave you an ongoing effect. Now, in this game, in the roll and write version, obviously there are no physical cards. So instead, at the bottom of each player's personal sheet, there is a bunch of different cards. I think it's like 20-ish or so cards printed down there, and every player has the same set. Now, this is a bit of a uh, assault on the eyes. <laughs> it's a lot of icons overall, but you kind of get used to it as you're playing the game. And when you buy a card, you actually just circle the middle of the card to say you bought, you spent the gold for it. And then when you cast a spell, you can spend the uh, crystals that you need on top to do the top action of a card. And then you effectively cross out the card so you know that it's gone. So we had to do a little bit of creative things with like circles. And we even used uh, the pen feature in Tabletop Simulator a couple times to try and um, make it obvious what we had there. And there are ways to deny cards from opponents, but I think at this point, I want to talk about our impressions more than the mechanics. There are a few things I haven't touched on, but let's go for uh, how it felt to play. Now, I played a three-player game of this, and interestingly enough, both of my opponents have played Pandoria, the original game before. Um, that's been a year or two since I played, so it had been a while for them. It felt vaguely familiar, but 
as we started playing this game, it felt very much like the original game. Like they were obviously trying to have a Pandoria experience in a roll and write setting. And I think they were able to pull that off. Um, the biggest change is that in, you know, in Pandoria, you have these double tiles and you um, have multiple and you can kind of decide which one to put out. Whereas in this game, you just roll the dice and then you figure out what you get. If you roll a six, then that could be any different type. So that actually gives you even more control over what type of stuff you're putting out onto the map. Now, my initial impression after playing Pandoria a few times and Pandoria Merchants once is I think I like Pandoria Merchants better. Um, it seems like it's the same feel of the original game. It's still got those explosive moments where just tons of resources are gathered and tons of victory points can be taken, but it ha doesn't have the extra stuff. You know, you don't have to worry about having your workers bumped off. You just put one down every single turn. So that feels very standard. And I thought that was a fine way to fill out the map even more. Um, also, I kind of liked the rolling of dice to then put tiles down onto the board instead of having all of these tiles to kind of sort through and put down. I think that worked out really well. Now, I do want to mention, as um, you could probably tell, I, I use this in Tabletop Simulator. So we did not write this stuff down. Instead, I built tokens for all of these different types and I placed them down onto the board. So it felt like I was playing a board game in Tabletop Simulator. If you're playing this as a roll and write where you actually print these out and write down on them, um, sure, you can use different colored pencils, but the idea is you kind of draw these different shapes in. And then for your workers, you actually uh, write a letter in for the first initial of your name as long as it's different than your opponent. So I think it's probably harder to parse what's going on in this game when you're actually writing it out with a, a pen or something like that onto paper. It was a lot easier to parse in Tabletop Simulator with lots of tokens that I made and put in with all sorts of fancy colors and whatnot. And our workers were large pieces that would obviously stand out as well. So I, I do want to put a caveat there that maybe it's harder to, to play the game when it's actually being played as it's intended. Um, but I do want to mention that uh, the publisher of the game has mentioned has uh, announced that they are planning on putting out a purchasable version of this game. Um, I mentioned it a couple of times, but I used the free print and play copies to import this into Tabletop Simulator. And I hope... Uh, slash expect that the purchasable version will have much better components uh, and probably better art overall and probably bigger maps so that all of this stuff is easier to uh, play with, uh, hopefully even workers that you can put down onto the board, but who knows? We'll, we'll see what they actually end up doing. Uh, but yeah, I, I will say that my opponents were a little bit less hot on the game. And so this is once again, the reason why I mentioned that I made this mod and I put the time and effort a couple of hours to put this together because I was so interested in it. So once again, I have a bias towards enjoying the game. Um, I feel like both of my opponents enjoyed the play overall. Um, at least one of them mentioned that they felt like they would prefer to play the original board game. And I think the biggest detractor to Pandora Merchants compared to the original board game is that the card play mechanic in Merchants is it's a bit hard to parse. There's a lot of small cards. Uh, you're scribbling on it, which makes it even harder to parse with all of the icons. Whereas in the original game, you had large cards that, you know, made a lot more sense overall. But uh, either way, I thought that that worked okay. If I had my, uh, if it was a perfect world, I wish I could play Pandora Merchants where the card um, mechanic was different, maybe simplified in some way, or I just feel like it's not quite there uh, for me. I feel like maybe there was another iteration that could have made it uh, snap a 
little bit more, but I don't even know what that is. So I guess I shouldn't uh, say things like it definitely could be better when I don't have any good ideas for it. But overall, I felt like it flowed well. I think it had the big explosive moments that are great in Pandoria. And I should mention, I lost by a lot in this game. I almost got skunked. Both of my opponents had almost twice the points that I did, and I still think I enjoyed it more than both of them, slightly more either way. Uh, so I had fun while I was going. Realistically, the reason they won is because both of them invested in buildings that gave you points when crystals were harvested, and this massive patch of crystals was made in the middle of the board, and I kind of didn't notice it. I was working on other things. I was going for a crown strategy, which just gives you points straight up, and then suddenly, you know, I had about the same amount of points as my opponents, and then suddenly that crystal patch wasn't closed in and one of them got like 20 points and the other one got like 27 points. And I was like, oh, so I'm going to lose really badly. <laughs> and the game still had about 25% to go, but I don't know. I, I still enjoyed it. I still did the best I could. I was striving to not get skunked and I successfully was not skunked. And I think I would play it better overall in the future. Uh, but I guess I should wrap this up by saying I'm not like actively excited to play the game again, I really would not mind playing it again. It was a cool experience overall, but I would uh, be more interested in playing Nidavellir or the Incel uh, Imnebel, which I talked about earlier, uh, over playing this one again. So it's possible I might get back to it. Uh, depending on the price point of the physical version when it comes out, I might try to track down a copy, uh, especially if it looks like it's um, a little bit more playable than the black and white uh, print and play version that's out right now. It makes sense that it's black and white. They're trying to conserve our printer paper, which I appreciate. But, you know, again, having um, a better production value would certainly help the playability of this game. So overall, I think it's a great distillation of Pandoria, the original game. Uh, as I said before, I have a slight preference for it, but I do still own Pandoria, the base game. So um, maybe I'll try that again at some point in the future when I play games with people and I can uh, get a better uh, comparison between them. But uh, overall, I think that is going to wrap up my thoughts on Pandoria Merchants. Well, at this point, we have come to the end of this vlog. I hope you've enjoyed learning about some new games. I guess I'm making an assumption that you haven't heard of these games before, but they are certainly not the current hotness, <laughs> so to speak. So I imagine this video is not going to get anywhere near the views that uh, other ones have gotten that had uh, games that people have heard about. But um, these are games that look like fun to me. Uh, that's why I purchased a couple of them, and that's why I put hours and hours into importing these into Tabletop Simulator just to play them with friends. Uh, so I'm looking forward to playing them more in the future. I think this is just what I have to do to play games that I own that are not already out there on the internet with my friends. You know, I've been kind of waiting on some of these, like, oh, I'll get to them when the pandemic kind of cools down and I can play stuff with people again. But at this point, who knows when that'll be. So uh, it's possible I will continue to make mods for more games that I am acquiring that I do want to play because I am a sucker for new games. And, you know, if I'm purchasing a game, then odds are good. I am hopeful that I'm going to enjoy it because I spent money on it overall. And so far, I think that I have good picks with the Inselm and Neville and Nidavellir. Even though one of the people did not love uh, Inselm and Neville that much, um, I'm hopeful to uh, convince them otherwise with the extra modules. And also, not every game is for everyone. And I enjoyed playing it and I own it. So that's ultimately what matters when it comes to actually keeping it around. So yeah, I think that is going to bring this podcast to a close. Thanks for listening.